Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, the Leewood Campus of Christ Community. We're glad you're here on this summer day, and uh, hopefully we'll get some sunshine sometime around here, huh? Uh, but there's sunshine in our hearts, and we welcome you and hope you sense the presence of Christ uh, in our midst. So thank you for worshiping with us. It's a delight to have you here. Well, in a new Netflix original series, I don't know if you've seen it, called Chef's Table, uh, we get a, an amazing glimpse into the lives and vocations of some of the finest culinary geniuses of our time. In one episode particularly, uh, Dan Barber, who is one of the most celebrated chefs of our time, speaks transparently about his own life, his work, and the struggle with the shadow of death that haunts him. Everything he loves, everything he works for, everything he longs for. And he confronts the reality of this question. Watch. I too was young when, like Dan, I confronted death. Uh, I still remember seeing my father's uh, lifeless casket lowered to a very cold, unfeeling grave. I learned that death early on as a young boy raised the most intense emotions in my heart and raised the deepest questions in my mind. And I want to suggest to you perhaps the biggest fear about death is not just the fear of pain or the unknown, but is it not to confront the possibility that our life and everything we love, everything we've done is meaningless? At the end of the day, all of us ask the question, as Dan does, does my life really matter? Does the life, the people I love, the work I do every day really offer nothing? Viktor Frankl, who wrote, I think, the most brilliant book, perhaps, of the 20th century, entitled Man's Search for Meaning as a Psychiatrist, tells us that we are meaning creatures. That when you pale, pale back the layers of our existence every day, at the very core, we are meaning creatures. Yet if we are honest, at wherever we are in our life is that death throws this massive roadblock in meaning's way. Because our souls and minds are haunted by the question of death, that it inevitably raises, whether it's ours or someone we love. Most of us avoid conversations about death, don't we? Or often we stay so busy and distracted in our lives, our careers, our families, we have little time to think about it. That even with busy schedules submerged in a frenetic pace and minds cluttered with distractions, the aching void remains. Is death it? Does death have the last word? Or is it possible that death opens the door to a new day? Could the end actually be a new beginning? See, Christianity looks death square in the eyes, not through some pie-in-the-sky wish dream, but rather straight in the eyes without blinking seeing both the harsh realities of death, but also a hopeful reality in death. Christianity looks at death both with the inevitability of a cold, lifeless grave, but also the historical reality of a life-changing empty tomb. And the Apostle Paul in the text this morning brings those two together in brilliant focus. 
The Apostle Paul tells us that the bodily resurrection of Jesus brings into focus not only the meaning of our lives, but the meaning of death. And if you've not turned there yet, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you've been a part of our series, you know that Paul has been encouraging these first century followers of Jesus with antiphonal refrains of themes that keep waving back through the literary text. Paul has said over and over again in this book, grow up, Corinthians, wise up. Learn to love well and then learn to serve well. And that is the directional trajectory of this marvelous inspired letter. So in chapter 15, Paul reminds the Corinthian believers and us both to stay hopeful in death and faithful in life. And I want you to see in the text this morning as thoughtful listeners and readers of the sacred text, Paul brilliantly weaves together the underlying quest in our hearts for meaning with the main thematic thread of the historical reality of the resurrection. And he brings these two realities into simultaneous focus. He does it with logical precision. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, I encourage you to read the whole chapter this week or today. And he wants us to know in the first half of the chapter that with logical precision, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then the Christian faith is useless, it's futile, it's mere smoke and mirrors, it's a fraudulent fiction. We are still in our sins. Our life and our work and relationships are meaningless. And death is the best we can hope for. That's the first part of the chapter 15. But in the second half, as he turns the corner, Paul presses into what the resurrection of Jesus means for us in our quest for meaning. What it means for our meaning, both in life and in death. Paul's big idea that we're going to explore this morning is this. If Jesus is alive, then the end is only the beginning. And Paul gives us this big idea and he focuses with a concentrated way in verses 50 through 58. And he gives us three hopeful reasons to support his idea. And these are the three. And this is the literary scaffolding of our text this morning. First, Paul says, we will be made new. Like Jesus, we will be made new. Secondly, we will see death die. We will see death die. And third, we will know our work really matters. That's the flow of the text. So this morning first, let's look at we will be made new. This is where Paul focuses. He declares this in verse 20 first, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And then in verses 35 through 49, Paul weaves together a central illustration of comparison. The central illustration is highlighting the newness of our lives and bodies one day because of Jesus' bodily resurrection. So Paul looks to a simple but profound illustration in nature. He looks to a seed that is buried in the ground and then rises to become a plant. Uh, in our backyard, we have a small little uh, organic garden. It's something I try to tend. Uh, and uh, I try to plant things and grow things there which sometimes is a mixed bag, I assure you. But not long ago, as the weather turned in the spring, I planted some really grungy-looking brown seeds. Seem lifeless, right? But they're beans. That's what the guy at the hardware store told me. And uh, so I planted them with faith. All the rains we had, boosh! It's like, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk beans. I mean, I have beans, just amazing beans. But the idea here, you don't have to be a gardener, right? This is what Paul says. Everybody knows that what the bean looked like when I put it in the ground and what it looks like now is vastly different. Yet it is connected. 
And so Paul uses this illustration as a primary thrust in this whole chapter. He says this metaphorical picture is like our bodies, our present bodies and our future bodies. There is a similarity, but one day they will be vastly different. And he focuses on the difference or the dissimilarity in this text. The future bodies we will have in the resurrection is a body that will reflect us as being more fully human than we have ever known in this life. And that's his focal point. Now let's remember that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they point out Jesus' glorious resurrection, after his resurrection, they present Jesus' physicality, his resurrected physicality in kind of a different dynamic. One text seems to suggest Jesus walked through walls and doors. That's not something I can do, right? Or you can do. Some people recognized Jesus after his resurrection and some people didn't. Hmm, kind of curious there. And uh, Jesus ate this fish sandwich breakfast with his disciples, just like you and I would eat breakfast. So Paul is reminding us with that historical backdrop, like a seed and a plant, there will be both similarities and dissimilarities with our present bodies and our future ones. And he uses massive contrastive language all through this chapter, highlighting our present natural bodies, contrasting them with our future spiritual bodies. And here in verses 50 through 53, Paul makes the point that our future resurrection bodies will be changed in a quick way, like the blink of an eye, a suddenty, our new creation life, we are transformed, but that is not just after we die. Paul will tell us that it is occurring now, this new creation life, once we embrace the gospel. For example, in Paul's next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away, new things have come. And our Lord Jesus, in his teaching recorded in John chapter 3, tells us that we cannot even see the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the life we were designed to live. We cannot even enter it unless we are born from above, unless we experience a new creation spiritual birth. So eternal life begins not just after we die, but from the very moment we, in faith and repentance, embrace the gospel. So I think what Paul wants us to ask, the first question of reflection is, are we being made new? Have we repented of our sin, placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and his, his gift to us of unmerited grace to us, and trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Have we experienced a new birth? Have we experienced new creation life breaking in? And if so, are you growing in Christ? Are you choosing to become more like Christ every day? Paul is affirming that in Christ, we are made new, not just after we die, but once we trust him as our savior. And what Paul is saying is if Jesus is alive, if Jesus is resurrected from the dead, then the end is only the beginning. And the beginning begins now, not just after we die. We will be made new. Paul says that. But secondly, notice, he says, we will see death die in verses 54 through 57. This is really the emphasis of hope here. Now, let me read this text carefully again. Follow along in verses 54 through 57. Notice Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? <laughs> oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But 
Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've read the Bible at all or you're beginning to read it again, you know from Genesis chapter 3, that's the very first part of the Bible, when sin enters the world, death hijacks itself with sin and enters the world. And the Bible throughout the whole text of Scripture presents death as humanity's ultimate and most dangerous enemy. And we need to understand that humans were not created for death. Death was not a part of God's design originally. But God's shalom that infused and informed creation, his brilliant wholeness and beauty and coherence and wonder was deeply vandalized by sin. Describing the future death of death, Paul looks back. You'll notice in your Bible, if you have a certain type of Bible, it'll tell you that this text is quoted from the Old Testament. So Paul plucks the Old Testament prophet Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14, where Hosea looks to the day when death will be conquered and vanquished forever, and he presents death in a very interesting metaphorical picture. Hosea does. He presents death as a venomous creature, like a, like a scorpion or a wasp that is rendered harmless without its sting. Now, one of the things about the spring in our house is that uh, in our upstairs bathroom, uh, we've had some unwelcome guests. And uh, they've slithered through the outside window, and there's some, I can't find it, uh, there's some wasp nest in our backyard. So if you're good at killing wasps, come over, okay? But they've found their way in between the panes, and you don't want to open up the window and the wasps come in, right? So I've been on a mission. Now, most bugs... I mean, if they're unwanted, I just squish them. I don't think anything of it. Just, or, or kick them out of the house, right? But wasps are different. They're little fragile teeny things, for goodness sakes. But they put the fear of God in me. <laughs> and you too, right? I mean, you don't mess with wasps. You bring out what I call the SWAT team, right? Oh, fully whack them, right? Why? Because they have a stinger. And that's what Paul is saying. Everybody understood this. What gives death its fearsomeness is its sting. And he looks to the Old Testament lawns as that even adds to it. The venomness of it. But notice where the metaphor goes from a sting to something even more dramatic. Notice he quotes Hosea and says that death will be swallowed. Now the Hebrew text of the Old Testament and the Greek is beautiful here because this is not a dainty morsel taste. The picture of, uh, that we're given here, and Paul uses Hosea, is this massive swallowing. It's like this massive power voraciously swallowing up something smaller and insignificant. Does that sound like the movie Jurassic World that just came out? Now, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I'm not sure my constitution can handle that terror because the first time Jurassic Park came out, I went to the big screen. And I have to tell you, I still remember that moment when the T-Rex swallowed that guy sitting on a toilet. Do you remember that? He's boom. <laughs> I mean, talk about a nightmare. I mean, there's no question that that guy was kaput. I mean, he was gone forever, right? Invisible. Just... That's the picture here. The death is nothing anymore. It's invisible. It's conquered. It's kaput forever. Can you imagine what your life would be like now 
if death had already been fully swallowed up. Can you, can you imagine not having, going through your day, your work, your life, your friends, with no thought of dying, no fear of death, no fear of ever losing someone you love in death? Isn't that the greatest fear of loving someone? Is losing them forever? Paul says, death is going to be completely swallowed up, kaput. The prophet Isaiah looked to the future of the death of death as well. When the Messiah would deliver its fatal blow, Isaiah 25, 8 and 9. Let me just read this marvelous text, because this could be part of the text that Rabbi Paul has in mind here. Notice Isaiah says he will swallow up, the Messiah will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It'll be said on that day, behold, that this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And when we look at the very end of the Bible, John gives this picture of the future new heavens and new earth when death will die forever, when death will be swallowed up. And notice in Revelation 21.4, we hear these words, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. How does death die? How is death swallowed up? In dying, Jesus killed death. In raising from the dead, Jesus swallowed death up. And conquered death forever. This is why the Apostle Paul, if you follow in the text, he erupts in this rapturous praise to Jesus. <laughs> in a burst of extraordinary rapturous praise, in verse 57, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons the gospel is such incredibly good news is that it not only offers us new life and forgiveness from sin, if that is not enough, but proclaims forever now the death of death. And it removes the roadblock of meaninglessness in your life and mine forever. So let me ask you, are you facing death with hope? Each one of us, each one of us walks on a thin tightrope of time across the vastness of eternity. Death awaits each one of us. It's only a matter of time. And none of us look forward to death, do we? But if we have embraced Christ, we need not dread it. Death has been defanged. Jesus looked death straight in the eye and he didn't blink, but he cried intensely at the tomb of his good friend, Lazarus. Why did Jesus weep? He knew that that wasn't how he created the world. And yet Jesus also must have seen the cross that awaited him what it would take to defeat death, to bring Lazarus back forever, not just to die again. And one of the most hopeful texts of all of the Bible, and I encourage you, if you've not read much of the Bible, read through the Gospel of John. In John 11.25, right after this, Jesus says these words. These are some of the most hopeful words ever uttered to humanity. I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall live. Wow. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
is one of my favorite writers. His life, if you've not read his life, extraordinary life. And uh, if you read about his life, you know that he was imprisoned uh, and arrested by the Gestapo for opposing Hitler. On April 8th, 1945 at Flossenburg Prison, right after he conducted a worship service for his fellow prisoners, he was led to the gallows to be executed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's last recorded words were these, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. That's what Paul's saying. Bonhoeffer knew it. All apprentices of Jesus can know it. At heart level as well as mind level. The death is not the end. It's the only, the beginning. Because of the resurrection, Paul says, we are made new. Because of the resurrection, we will see death die and last, do not miss this, that we will know our work really, really matters. If I were Paul, from a literary standpoint and the standpoint of the whole letter, I would have stopped at verse 57. Because in one sense, it is the most intense crescendo of rapturous praise to our Lord Jesus. But Paul builds his whole chapter on verse 58. The whole chapter. If life after death was really all that ultimately mattered, Paul would have stopped at verse 57. Yet for Paul, the truth, the trajectory of the entire chapter, the resurrection of Jesus meant that everyday lives that we live now, before death, matter a great deal too. You will notice that verse 58 is the grammatical and literary destination of the entire chapter. And it is a very earthly one. Paul is not focused at this point about preparing for death, as important as that is. Rather, he is focused on us living life now. That what we do every day matters. Look with me at this crescendo of thought. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you want a fun exploration of this text, follow the literary dynamic and scaffolding of the whole chapter around the word labor, toil, and vain. You will notice in the original language it's even more uh, brilliant. But you will notice that Paul uses two words here in this verse to capture different aspects of work. It is work in the church, but it is work in the world. And the last word he uses is a word that's often translated trouble and toil, the difficulty of Genesis 3 on work that we do every day and the difficulty of it. See, no matter what our vocational calling is, no matter what kind of work we do, whether we are paid or not paid, whatever work waits us this week, we wrestle, don't we, with the toilsome nature of our work, with the struggle of it, with the difficult people we work with, and don't you, like me at times, let out this physical sigh? You wonder if your work really makes any difference at all? 
We may like our job. We may not like our job. Our job may give us lots of thrills or just pay lots of bills. Right? We may be running a company or running errands. We may be a professional or a plumber. And we all wonder at the end of the day, does this really matter? Don't we? One of the things that stunned me as I've traveled around the country and speaking on this particular area, because this is a particular passion of mine, is the number of people across stay-at-home, spouses, CEOs, pastors, leaders, that will come up to me and say, Tom, tell me that what I do every day matters. I don't see it. I don't feel it. And Christians must, in the first century, have asked the Apostle Paul this question too. Because he's very intentional about addressing this as the crescendo of the whole chapter on the resurrection. They must have said to Paul, come on, Paul. You don't know my workplace. You don't know what I'm dealing every day. You know the difficult people in Corinth. Does my work matter what I'm doing every day? And Paul takes them to the empty tomb of the resurrection and says, your work matters extraordinarily. Notice in verse 15, or chapter 15, all the way through, but notice the word vain. There are different original language words here. But one of the main themes of chapter 15 is this idea of vain. You'll notice verse 10, 14, it's twice. Verse 58. There are other sections that aren't translated English the same way, but they're the same words. All the way through from the very beginning, notice the beginning of the chapter, the literary incluso, the, the bookend, and the very end is bookended with the word empty. Do you see it? What the Apostle Paul, I think, is doing here is he's bringing the idea home to our hearts. The uselessness of life, the lack of purpose, the futility, the emptiness, the sense of no profit, and a waste of time. What is Paul doing? Paul is a brilliant rabbi, let's not forget. Paul had the Old Testament, most of it, if not all of it, memorized perfectly in Hebrew. Rabbi Paul, I believe, is connecting us to the book of Ecclesiastes. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you read it, the primary repetitive theme is vanity, vanity, emptiness, futile, toil, nothing, nothing, life. The question of all of the book is, does life matter? Does my life matter? Does what I love, my pleasure, does any of it matter? What is the meaning of it all is the book of Ecclesiastes. What is the meaning of my work, my life, and the inevitable death that awaits me? The whole book is devoted to that struggle that all of us feel. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all empty and meaningless. And Paul understood something you and I must understand. And here it is. The struggle in our hearts of the meaninglessness of life finds a rich, hopeful answer when Paul takes us to the empty tomb. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, We not only have hope and death, we have an extraordinary, meaningful life now. And what we do every day, even changing diapers or buying a company, this is where Paul leaves us. Jesus knew we were created with work in mind. He knew we were redeemed with work in mind. He worked in a carpentry shop. Can you imagine a carpentry shop for 30 years The vast majority of his time on earth, Jesus modeled and taught the importance of our everyday work life, both paid and unpaid, our vocational faithfulness now, and yes, the future. Remember one of his greatest parables, perhaps? Matthew 25. Jesus describes three financial portfolio managers. 
That's what they are. And two of them invest the money that the owner has well. And at the end when they come back, he says, well done. And what does he say? He says, you've been faithful in your work now. You've invested well now. I'm going to put you in charge of much more later. The work you and I do every day in this fallen world not only shapes us and transforms us, but it has a direct relation to what we'll be doing for eternity for God's glory. The work God has called each of us to do this week, whether we are paid or not paid, matters in serving others, but preparing for eternity what we'll be doing. Do not miss this. While it's important to have our hearts set on heaven that awaits us, yes, it's also important to have our hearts and hands focus on the work God has called us to do this week. Paul's heartbeat is as apprentice of Jesus, we would live faithfully and hopefully in the present with eternity in mind. So let me ask us this question with some thoughts. When you look at this brilliant chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, when you connect the longing of the heart for meaning with the glory of the resurrection and history that Jesus raised from the dead, it causes us to ask the question, how do I live well now in light of eternity and the hope we have? As a pastor, I long for all of us to live well. To live well in the now with eternity coursing through our veins. I long that each of us might live radiant lives as our friend Dallas Willard used to say to us over and over again, to live a radiant life and have a radiant death. Isn't that the heart of a pastor? Isn't that what our equipping is about at Christ Community? That's my heart for all of us. So let me give us three reminders that I need to be faithful to God this week. And I think you do too. First, live well today. Live well today. As apprentice of Jesus, begin each day with the end in mind, knowing the end is a new beginning, okay? One of the ways I try to live this out in my life is to remind myself I write it on almost everything I write on the top of it. I think about it just about every day. Not every day, but almost every day. I bring this to mind. This may be my last one before the audience of one. My last day before my audience of one, Jesus Christ. When we bring our audience of one with the brevity of life together, it allows us to live well today. The Apostle Paul must have had this in mind to the Ephesians when he said, make the most of your time. No, he's not saying uh, cram our schedule so full, right, we ruin our health or our relationships or that we don't take time for rest and recreation. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. But it does mean that our time on this earth, however long or short, is extremely precious to God. One of the classic books that we have lost, excuse me, my emotions are on the edge, sorry about that. But one of the great Christian classics that we have lost was written by Jeremy Taylor in the 17th century called Holy Living and Holy Dying. It's an extraordinary work. And uh, he writes about the brevity of life. It's one of his main themes. And he writes these words. Listen, he says, It is remarkable how frugal God is with time. He has scattered the sky with stars like a gardener scattering grass seed over a lawn. He has made an incredible variety of animals 
He has provided us with a wide choice of food and drink. Even though a very few of them would keep us alive and well. Yet, God parcels out time carefully. Drop by drop. Paul is saying, this moment in time is precious. Live well today. But secondly, he tells us work well. Work well this week. The Bible tells us again we were created with work in mind. We've been redeemed with work in mind. Your workplace, whether you are paid or unpaid, is a primary place where you love your neighbor, where you worship God 24-7, where you are spiritually formed, where you incarnate and proclaim the gospel. Knowing how much your work matters this week, how does this change your work this week? What is the Spirit of God saying to you? How will it change the attitude toward those difficult people you work with? How will it change the quality of doing your best work? Dorothy Sayers brilliantly said, the only Christian work is good work well done. Paul says, whatever you do, do it heartily as for the Lord. So what we do now how we do what we do, who we do it for, and how what we do now shapes us for what we will do in the future. Live well today, work well this week, and lastly, long for home. Long for home. We are pilgrims on a journey. The word heaven is often used to describe that future home, but what is heaven like? I remember my daughter, Sarah, when she was young, she endured many of my sermons. That's not always easy sitting there. And she asked me one day, Daddy, why don't you talk about heaven more? And I thought, I didn't know I wasn't talking about it. But I'm asked that question a lot, not only by young children, but senior saints. Gary Trudeau paints a picture of heaven here on a far side, Brown far side for a minute. We have that far side cartoon. <laughs> We often think of heaven like this. Wish I'd brought a magazine, like boring, dull, and lame. But the Bible completely dispels that idea. The most extraordinary place, Jesus says to his disciples before he's crucified, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what a place. Can you imagine? The most brilliant architect imaginable in the place. John gives us a glimpse of this in the end of the Bible, right? A new heaven, a new earth. A breathtaking new city, a garden in the city. In fact, if you were to trace the whole Bible and be smart to your friends, you go from a garden to a city or a city garden. That's the story. Isn't that beautiful? In some ways, heaven will be like what we already know. In other ways, very different from anything we have ever experienced that awaits us. One of the things I look forward to most in heaven is to be reunited. And the more people you lose, in your life, the more you long to see them again. In the meantime, our church, God designed the church, the local church, Christ's community, to be an appetizer of what is to come. C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant book, The Weight of Glory, describes our deep inner longing for our ultimate heavenly home, and he describes it as our inconsolable secret. And this is what he says. Listen carefully. 
It says, in speaking of this desire for our own far off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. He writes, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not yet found. The echo of a tune we have not yet heard. News from a country we have not yet visited. After my mom died, my siblings were cleaning out her apartment only to find her last scribbled words. Four words. Meet me at home. If Jesus is alive, if he is, the end is only the beginning. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak into each heart today. May we understand more fully what it means that Jesus died and rose again. And may we embrace our Lord Jesus in his kindness and grace, experience new life and transformation, and flood our hearts and minds with a buoyant hope that allows us to face this day, this week, the struggles, the, the trials, the hurts, the pains with a confidence that we are on our way home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And moving hymns of the church was written by Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford lost his three daughters at sea. And when he went across the Atlantic, he asked the captain of the ship to stop where his three daughters had perished. And Horatio Spafford looked across that ship and the hopeful ways of eternity washing over him, and he penned these words. I'd like us to stand as we sing it with hope. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea, let's stand, like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul.